Have you ever had the yips? It's a term that's usually used in the sports world to describe when someone, an athlete, a high-performance high athlete, suddenly loses the ability to do a basic skill like throwing a ball, something that they've done countless times before and suddenly can no longer do successfully. The Mayo Clinic even has a definition for the yips and they, they refer to it as an involuntary muscle spasm that often occurs when a golfer attempts to putt. Now, the idea of the yips has probably remained within the sports world for the most part, but exploded onto our national scene, our cultural uh, awareness over the last few years at our last Olympics when our nation's gymnast Simone Biles suffered from what she called the twisties when she lost the ability to perform these nearly miraculous aerial maneuvers that she had practiced and you know mastered but she just lost this sense that she was safe her confidence as she did these things even though she'd done it so many times before it just kind of overnight disappeared. Of course, there there are many athletes who have had something like this happen and it's ended their careers. For Simone Biles, it completely altered her experience in the Olympics. Others are able to kind of, you know, get some therapy, go retrain again, get back in the saddle, persevere, and restore the level of success that they were used to. Now, for you and me, we aren't usually going to have something that dramatic happen to us, right? Where we just suddenly lose the ability to do something basic that we've always done. But we do have moments in our lives, discouragements that come along and knock us off course, right? Or challenges that require us to do some soul searching. Or failures that we experience that are so uncomfortable that we vow that we're never going to fail in the same way again. It may be a a need for an important conversation with a boss at work that ends up in an argument. Or maybe you tried to do something kind to a family member and it went completely unnoticed or unappreciated. Or maybe you tried to connect with your neighbors and just ran into a wall of rejection. When those sorts of things happen to us in life, a lot of times we just want to quit. Well, fine, if that's how it's going to be, then I'm not going to try. Just want to avoid the discomfort and avoid those situations that challenge us and demand more from us than what we feel we're capable of giving. But who wants to live that way? I mean, Who wants to just go to work and have to just kind of grind your teeth, bite your tongue when there are important things going on that need to be talked about? Or who wants to be in a family relationship where you're just kind of robotic and um, you can't, can't risk being kind to somebody? Or who wants to come home and just pull the car into the garage and put down the door and not have any kind of connection with the people on your street? There's no way to live, right? We can't pursue peace at any cost. We can't just let comfort be what dictates what we do. No, we need to face into these challenges. And certainly as God's people, we've been called to do more than just avoid conflict, right? 
But how do we do it? How do we stay in there? How do we come back when these things challenge us? Well, today, as we continue our study in the Gospel of Mark, we're in chapter 11, and we hit an important milestone today because Jesus enters Jerusalem, the place where he's going to die. And he's warned his disciples about this a few times. We saw it in the last chapter. And we know that things are going to be grim here. Jesus is wading into an impossible situation, a situation where he knows he will lose his life. So how will he respond in the face of this kind of conflict? What lessons can we gain from it here? Our big idea today is that Jesus relentlessly waded into conflict to fulfill his mission, and he empowers us to do the same. Jesus relentlessly waded into conflict to fulfill his mission And he empowers us to do the same. So let's take a look at it here. In Mark 11, we'll start in verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So, as we begin this chapter, Jesus and his band of disciples are on the doorstep of Jerusalem. They come to these towns, Bethany and Bethpage, which are one to two miles outside of the city, about a half hour's walk in. And you have to imagine the disciples are feeling the weight of anxiety here. I mean, it's about to happen. They're at the top of the roller coaster, about to plunge into who knows what. And in the midst of that drama, that anxiety, Jesus pulls aside two of them and says, go in front of the rest of us. And take a colt that doesn't belong to us from the town there. These guys got to be really nervous about this, right? The anxiety must spike here for these two. But do you see Jesus' grace in this moment? That he takes away the fear of the unknown, the fear of this uncertainty from them by being ultra specific about what's going to happen when they do this. He tells them there's going to be a colt waiting for you there. It hasn't ever been ridden before. And then, if somebody wonders why you're taking it, here's what you need to tell them. It's completely specific, and he takes away any of the concern that they might have. And so we see that Jesus knows what's coming. He knows what God's plan is here, and he is in control of the events that are coming. It must be reassuring. But at the same time, it's a little bit of a double-edged sword because he's promised three times that he's going to be tortured, he's going to be mocked, spit upon, flogged, 
and killed here. And so if the thing about the cult is right, then those predictions could very well be right too. Well, it all works out. And Jesus' control over these events is displayed also in his riding on this untamed colt. And we see this moment that's pretty familiar to us in the life of Jesus of what we know as the triumphal entry. All the people are just ecstatic, eager, this, this uh, spontaneous celebration of the Messiah coming in to deliver his people. The kingdom of David has finally come. We're going to throw off the oppressive domination of our Gentile overlords, the Romans. He will set us free and we will have our own self-government. We'll be able to be the great nation we were supposed to be again. Is there hope? Save us, Jesus. Hosanna. The problem is they have the wrong expectation for what Jesus is going to do. Someday he will do that. We await his return when he will exert his supremacy over the whole earth. But that's not what he's doing in this moment. In this moment, it's a humble entry. He's going to achieve victory through his death and his resurrection. And the victory will be purifying all people so that they're acceptable in the sight of God. That we can have a relationship forever with God. And these folks... Celebrating Jesus have no idea what he's there for. Now, Jesus goes along with this kind of motley and makeshift uh, celebration. He, he's the one who told them to get the colt, after all. So there's something about this that Jesus wants to communicate as he makes this entry in. But it should be the, the contrast in what a, a Roman military triumph should look like versus what Jesus does should be a signal to everybody that their expectations are not going to be fulfilled. They're going to be different from what they think. It's, it's an ancient military custom, this triumphal entry, where a conquering general is paraded back into the capital city, everybody celebrating. He has treasures in his, in his train here, all the stuff that he's plundered from a foreign enemy. But Jesus rides in on this meager colt rather than a massive war horse. And underneath his feet, everybody's thrown down their cloaks and branches that they just were able to grab from the nearby fields and throw down rather than carefully arranged, sumptuous carpets. And behind him, there are these dazed and timid Disciples, this ragtag group that's just kind of shambling behind, not sure what they're supposed to be doing, rather than exotic animals and a chain of captives strung together as slaves and boisterous soldiers. There's a humility to how Jesus is brought in as this conquering hero. And it signals that his victory is not going to be what everybody thinks. It's not going to come through force, through power, through domination, through military might, through politics. It's going to come as he gives his life in sacrifice for his people. Well, so after the humble entry here, we see this kind of anticlimactic Verse in, in 11 where Jesus enters Jerusalem and then he just kind of wanders into the temple and 
takes a look around at things. We don't get a lot of detail about what's happening here. But Jesus is not just some wide-eyed tourist just taking in the sights of the city. No, he is scoping out the environment. He's getting the lay of the land. He's preparing for the next explosive moment in his fulfillment of God's mission for him. He's preparing because he is confident in God's plan for him. He knows what's coming next, and he wants to be ready for it. He wants to be prepared. And we, too, should be confident in the mission that God has given us, the plan that he has for our lives. He's communicated it to us in his scriptures, and he's given us his spirit to guide us through it on a daily basis, uniquely for each one of us on a day-to-day basis, God's spirit within us directing our steps. And so we can have the utmost confidence as we move forward and do what he's called us to do as his people, what we get to do as his people. We can have the same confidence that Jesus had even as he moved forward into death and prepared to be successful in this next step toward that. So what is Jesus preparing for here? Well, let's look at it in verse 12. On the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Now this moment with the fig tree at the beginning of this is a little bit confusing. I'm pretty sure that Mark didn't put it in here as a justification for being hangry. Okay, But... As Jesus comes to this tree, hungry, nothing to eat yet, as he's gotten up this morning, which is incidentally a nice picture of us for what Jesus experienced as a human being, that he experienced hunger pains like we do. He comes to this tree, and it's just doing what's natural to it, right? Mark tells us it's not the season for figs. There shouldn't be fruit on it. But Jesus' point is that he's going to judge unfruitfulness. It's natural for the people of Israel, as Jesus says in John's gospel, who are of their father, the devil. It's natural for them to not produce fruit in keeping with God's glory and righteousness. They produce the works of the devil. And so Jesus is going to judge that. That's what he does as he goes into the temple He's judging their fruitlessness. This is a nation that's that's called to reveal Yahweh and his glory to the whole world. And they failed miserably at that task. As he went in the night before to look at the temple, what he saw was greedy, self-satisfying leeches just extracting whatever they could get 
from the pious, from the people who wanted to worship God as he intended. And their corruption had become so extreme that this place that was to be the, the dwelling place for God on earth in that time, a place of prayer, a place of worship, had become a place of trade and commerce. And so Jesus, committed to his purpose to purify the children of Israel, he starts overturning tables and tossing stools. He won't let anybody come in with any stuff. He sends out the people who are doing wrong. And it's an offensive and disruptive scene. And it it sounds like everyone just kind of sits there and watches him do it. I mean, he's... He's flipping their livelihood into the air here, and coins are scattering everywhere. Pigeons are flying, you know, flapping their wings, and it seems like nobody resists him. I think it's because his righteousness speaks for itself. They know he's right. They know that this is what the temple is supposed to be like, a place of prayer for all nations. And so they won't resist him to his face in this moment. But... His commitment to his purpose doesn't come without consequences. The plans for his assassination go into high gear now behind the scenes. Of course, Jesus isn't surprised by this. He knows what's coming. And he's already prepared for this eventuality, I think, because they're staying a mile or two outside of town. He's going to fight this battle. He's going to engage this conflict on his own terms. He's not going to let somebody sneak up on him in the middle of the night, and he wants to keep his disciples safe. So they'll stay this night outside of the city again because he knows there's going to be opposition. And he knows that there's a right time and a right moment in God's plan when all of this stuff is going to happen. So they'll retreat back out to Bethany after day two in Jerusalem here, refresh, recharge, He's going to get up the next morning and committed all the while to this purpose, head right back into the fray. Jesus is committed to his purpose. And we must be committed to our purpose to make disciples. That we, we can acknowledge that obstacles are there. We can spin it around and try to figure out how to make them opportunities. But we don't get discouraged. We don't give up. We don't avoid the difficulty. We, we stay steadfast on the mission. I'm going to make disciples. We don't get discouraged when the results aren't there immediately. We keep working. We innovate. We try to find better ways to do stuff. We don't try the same thing over and over again when it doesn't work. We stay committed to our purpose as disciple makers. Now, uh, as I try to be a disciple maker in my home, one of the things that we've settled on with our kids is when they turn 13, I take them out for a trip. A few days, we go do something that they love to do. And, you know, the purpose is just kind of as they hit that milestone of in entering the teen years, it's just kind of a reaffirmation of, hey, I'm with you. Let's stay close, all right? There's a whole bunch of changes that are going to come in the next few years, but let's stay close, right? And, and honestly, part of this for me was that I had misgivings about the teen years for a long time. We're, we're in the middle of it now, uh, three out of four. 
and it's fun. But I had to change my perspective because I felt kind of negative about it. Like, oh man, I want my kids to stay cute and innocent forever. And they don't want that, you know? So let's embrace just the natural flow of things. God has created us to age here on earth. So let's, what's next? What's God doing in this season? And so it's a way to just embrace that. And let's go do something you love. Let's spend some good time together. Have some good conversation. And so Noah and I started all this a couple years ago. He, he and I both love the New York Mets. And so we watched them play baseball out in Chicago against the White Sox. The Mets swept the series. It was, couldn't have been any better. Alex and I went to Washington, D.C. And, and watched the Mets beat up on the Nationals last summer, although the Nats did get one win. Um, that was a lot of fun. But Grady, like his dad, is a little bit of a nonconformist, and so circumstances were him, with him were a little different. He wanted to go on a backpacking trip, and uh, I, I love that idea. I wanted to do that too, uh, but he also, his, when we would have gone was when COVID was happening. And so through a combination of things, we didn't end up going till he was almost 15, but we were going to do it. We had committed to this purpose. We're going to go on this trip. And so we made it happen. We hiked about 30 miles over three days. It was supposed to be 27. We had trouble finding a turn at one point. Uh, we, we caught our own fish uh, before we hiked and gutted them and scaled them and cooked them over an open fire together. That was one thing he, like, he had to do. And thankfully, the fish cooperated. And uh, then we, we went out into the wilderness for three days, and it was amazing to be out in God's beautiful creation. George Washington National Forest, um, just a disconnect from the hustle and bustle of urban life. And we were loving it. Uh, but a few hours in, on that first day, I was reminded that I am no longer 15 years old. And so this old man's creaky knees uh, really started to creak with that extra 40 pounds on my back. And, you know, it was about 80 degrees. We went during the summertime, and it was sunny, and even in the mountains, it was pretty warm. And so, you know, it's nice to have kind of a constant flow of water down your throat. Uh, but you have to carry all your water. And so we, we weren't going to carry three days' worth of water. That would have been impossible. So we had to wait until we found a stream that we could get water from. So that was inconvenient to be thirsty and not be able to drink. And um, I also found that my hiking boots didn't fit the way I remembered. And so I had blisters that cropped up that first day. And blisters don't heal overnight, y'all. So uh, I carried those for a few days. And... Uh, as much as I enjoyed it and was staying positive, even when we had trouble finding that turn at the end of the first day as, as the sun was going down, uh, we had a place we had to get to. We were committed to our purpose. We just got to keep going. Let's, let's do this, Grady. Good bonding moments. But I did also start thinking, what if I can't make it? What are we going to do? Like, I could endanger Grady here. I could endanger myself. I don't need to be foolish about this whole thing. But there comes a point as you're hiking in a circle where, you know, it, no, that was the route to go in a circle rather than out and back. <laughs> Although we, we were circling in that one point. Uh, but there comes a point where, like, you're past the point of no return. You, it's longer to go back than it is to just keep going forward, right? As long as you hit the turns right. And uh, so... It, we're committed to this purpose. We have no choice but to proceed, just to move forward, right? 
And so Grady was very helpful, very patient with me, uh, definitely could have gone faster than I did. Uh, at one point, toward the end of uh, our second day, he gave me his walking stick so then I could have two of them and I could get my arms involved and not just my legs. And we made it, we made it. It was great, um, had a beautiful view just a few miles before the end, took some nice pictures to re- help us remember it. But we had committed to this purpose and we had to make good on it. Now, uh, one of the best memories I have in my life, just to be able to spend time out in the wilderness with my boy. Um, I hurt for at least a week after. So one important lesson that I learned from that is next time I should probably ramp up a little bit, you know, take some shorter hikes, wearing that weight. Um, because we need to commit to our purpose to make it through challenges but we don't have to make it more challenging, right? So, um, as we look at this final section here in Mark 11, we, Mark's structure is similar to what we just saw in the middle here. We have an episode with the fig tree and then an encounter in the temple. So let's look at it here in verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, The fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven... He will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say, from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So as they come back and see the fig tree the next day, Peter can't believe it. It's withered. There's been this immediate response to Jesus' curse. And it's, it presents an occasion for Jesus to offer some remarkable words on the empowerment that we have in prayer. And the bottom line is, have faith in God. When we trust in God, then we know that what he wills will take place. In the midst of challenges, in the midst of things like the yips or the twisties, The cure-all is that we have faith in God, that we know he's with us, we know that his will is good, that he is good, and that nothing happens apart from his permissive will. But as we look at some of the rest of what Jesus says here, in verses 23 and 24, this can be a little bit challenging to think through. 
I mean, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Now, I don't know about your experience, but I have prayed for some things that have not happened. And I have never seen a mountain picked up and thrown into the sea. Now, don't misunderstand. The last thing I'm doing here is shedding any kind of uh, doubt on what Jesus says here. My, my posture when I come to the text is to always understand it as literal unless there's a good reason not to. You know, if it's a parable or some other kind of genre there, that's figurative, right? So what is Jesus saying? Is this, is this legit? Well, I think there are a few things to consider here. First, not everything we ask for is legit. The legitimacy isn't an issue for Jesus, it's an issue for us, right? I've asked for some things that were a little bit boneheaded when I've thought back on it in hindsight, right? And you probably have too. Our will does not always align perfectly to God's will. But the other thing is, that Jesus was a perfect human being, and none of us are. And so Jesus, I think, has some kind of connection to, to the Father that we can only dream about, at least this side of heaven, as imperfect people. And I think what we see, the miracles we see Jesus do on earth, flow out of his perfect faith and his sinless life. And that if we were theoretically to be able to duplicate that, then we would see works even greater than these, like the gospel writer tells us. So I think what Jesus is saying is entirely true. But I think he also has another idea in mind here. And that's because I think he's making reference to Psalm 46. Verse 2. So let's take a look at the first two verses of Psalm 46 here. And hopefully that'll give a little bit more clarity to us as we try to understand this and put it to work in our lives. So Psalm 46 verse 1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. I think the, the theme of the, the psalm here is that God is with us when we face challenges. And we don't need to fear because that's true. We see that theme here in verses 1 and 2 and then we see it repeated twice more in the 11 verses of this psalm. I think Jesus' point is similar. It's that we don't need to fear when we face challenges because God is right there in our midst. And so we can move forward and we can fulfill the mission that he's called us to in confidence in him, in his authority, in his power. Ultimately, prayer then becomes a cry for God's presence and his help. And of course, if, if that's the essence, if that's the heart behind our prayer, is God, I need you here with me now. I need your help. Is he ever going to say no to that prayer? Aren't we going to receive the answer to that prayer? God, I need you here now and I need your help. Now, it may not show up in the form we expect it to or we want it to be. 
But I, I believe that God will always be there with us. And he's always working for his glory, which I think naturally helps us. He's always working for the good of his people. So I think, I think that's some of what we can understand here from Jesus when he says, whatever you've asked for, you will receive if you believe. But he adds in some important things too in verse 25 about forgiving others and being forgiven by our Father. And that's because our sin can get in the way of God's power working in our lives. And so it's important that we're at peace with our fellow man. It's important that we're at peace with God so that we can enjoy the power of his presence in our lives, that we can enjoy him working through us. Well, in this last scene in the temple, we see Jesus with his steadfast belief in God's power and his authority. Jesus walks in and immediately there is confrontation. And his list of enemies has grown. It was before, the day before, it was just the chief priests and the scribes, but now that they've brought along some elders as well. They're rallying people against Jesus here. Well, I don't know about you, but if I had to walk in Jesus' sandals, and I'd just gone in the day before and flipped over tables, you know, hit, hit these guys right in their pocketbooks, the, the worst place to hit somebody, I wouldn't be ready to come back in here and see these guys again. I would be apt to just kind of veer for the path of least resistance. As soon as I saw them coming for me, be a hasty exit out of there. But no, Jesus doesn't shy away. Instead, if I read this creatively, I think he's got a little bit of a smile on his face. I think he's playing with these people. He's toying with them. As they confront him, he asks them this question, which has a really simple answer, we know, but it comes across as a riddle to them. And he, he just won't give them what they're asking for. And I, I think Jesus is resting in the confidence he has in God's plan that he knows the result here. It's, it's remarkable that he, if he is smiling, that he's able to do it knowing that to get to God's victory, he has to give his own life. But he knows the final result, and he knows that resistance is futile. And so he, he's able to rest in God's authority here. He's on the, the side of righteousness. He's fulfilling the mission of his Father, the maker and sustainer of the heavens and the earth. What can man do to him? It's God's authority that gives him that confidence. And now we, in our flesh, and with our instinct for survival, you know, our heart starts to beat wildly and our brain gets all foggy so we can't think clearly when we're in a situation where there's tension. Our mouth gets all dry so we can't say anything. But when we believe in God's authority, we just camp out there. We just acknowledge that that's who he is and that's what he's doing. Well, then things become easy. We're just, we rise above the fray and we're operating on a whole different plane. It's like an adult playing basketball with a bunch of little kids, right? You're just above it all. 
can do anything you want to. The deck, the deck is stacked in your favor. And with God's authority, his will will come about. We don't have to worry about resistance. We just have to persevere through it. Well, Jesus relentlessly waded into conflict to fulfill his mission. He knew it was coming, and he still pressed into it. And he empowers us to do the same. Isn't his example inspiring? I mean, how does that example speak into your fears about being rejected by your neighbors when you reach out to try to get to know them? How does his example inspire you to be an authority wherever you live, work, study, or play? That you're willing to go out on a limb and, and be the person who says, no, I know truth. I have divine wisdom to share with you, not, not in a condescending way, but I can tell you the right way to live life. Like, come to me for advice. I can help you. I can pray with you. Come find me. What if we were that person, wherever we live, work, study, and play, who can help people because we have divine help on our side? How does Jesus' example inspire you to be creative about relating to the unrelatable, people who have needs that no one else will bother to address? And will his example motivate you to do hard things? Sacrificing your rights in order to do what is right. You see, we don't have to be afraid of the yips or the twisties or failure. The only failure is disobedience. On the day of the crucifixion, it looked a lot like Jesus had failed. But a few days' time turned that conclusion right on its head. When we remain confident in God's plan, commit to the purpose he's given us, and believe in his ultimate authority, then we can stand proud in victory and triumph, humbly giving thanks to the God who empowered us for success. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the privilege of being called into your mission that we're your image bearers and that you've given us your spirit to empower us for a life of impact, of ministry, to be able to improve the world we live in as we direct people to you and to your kingdom. God, thank you for entrusting us with that mission and thank you for empowering us for that mission. I pray that you would help us to move forward with confidence in your plan that we would heed your word in the scriptures, that we would heed the voice of your spirit leading us, prompting us on a moment-by-moment basis. God, that we would commit to the purpose you've given to us and that we would rest as we believe in your ultimate authority that you will accomplish what you've said you're going to do. God, we marvel at you. We pray that you'd be glorified through us, through our lives as individuals, through us as a church, through your church, throughout Hampton Roads and the world, God. Glorify yourself, we pray in Jesus' name, by your spirit. Amen.